Welcome to the Denver United Church Sermon of the Week. Here's a message from Pastor Rob Brendel. Good morning. Welcome to Denver United. Thanks for coming to worship God together with us. Welcome to all of you who are worshiping from home or wherever you find yourselves today. It's an amazing thing to be Jesus' family, to be able to be in a lot of locations and to be one in Christ. You know, it's all the same. I I prefer being able to be one in Christ in an atmosphere of relative normalcy or things getting back to the best parts of normal. And with everything that feels like it now is as it should be, I feel like we're one step closer. Like spring being spring, sunny and warm rather than snowy and cold like winter. One more sign that the the apocalypse has passed and normalcy is returning. It's so great to be with you all. There's no substitute for gathering with the family of God, for worshiping together and and fighting for unity and, and belonging even as we're in all the different places that life lands us. You know, as we're in this series on the fruits of the Spirit, I was reflecting this week on a season of my life long gone by. When I was a young associate at a big church in Colorado Springs, I had the privilege, as I've shared with you before, of being a, uh, a columnist for a local, very non-Christian paper that ran a column monthly called Soul Search, which for the, the older among us, you'll recognize this, the masthead was, was like a silhouette of a disco dancer with the disco ball like Star Search, if you remember that, but it was Soul Search, like that. And I debated in print a guest columnist every month of the editor's choosing on a subject of her choice um, having to do with faith or religion or something like that. And, and uh, while they were not uh, didn't present themselves as earnestly seeking. They did create a forum for honest discourse, which I really respected. It was a highly secular, non-Christian publication, as you might imagine. Um, if Colorado Springs on the north side is characterized by a culture of Christianity, this would be the radical counterculture. Um, and one of those columns uh, over the many that I did for, for a few years stands out in my heart painfully. The the guest columnist was very friendly and we were cordial. And in the, inner, the interchange that would happen typically over email, we might get together for a cup of coffee to discuss the parameters of the column, but it would happen back and forth over email. Then the editor would compile that and make the column. It was actually, I think, a, a, a creative idea. My guest established as her premise how we Christians are perceived by the the broader community, at least the community of which she was a part. And she held uh, no punches. She described us as being seen by them, and the words I'll never forget in the column, as fuming fundies. Our fundamentalism, our insistence on dogma and our rightness but with an edge that we fumed and fussed and ranted and raved to the world around us for not being as good as us. That was their perception. And then to one another. She continued in her column as, as, it, as our interchange progressed, uh, and, and it broke my heart, to describe the religious cannibalism 
that was the perception of secular culture, of us, the people of God, that after fuming at the world around us, we would turn and fume at one another and consume one another alive over our differences that to them were minutia or indistinguishable, but that made such a big deal to us that we ate our own. And it absolutely broke my heart because it was the one column that I couldn't come up with something to say back, except this grieves me and I wish it were not so. So the question I want us to grapple with this morning is, how are we known to the world? We, the followers of Jesus, and how are we known secondarily to one another? How are we experienced if you will. We're in Galatians chapter 5 for this series. Our touch point is in verse 16. I say, Paul writes to this first generation church, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. He goes on to give a counterpoint to say that the fruits of the sinful nature, if you don't let the Holy Spirit guide your lives, but continue to be instruments of wickedness led by the enemy of our souls, are thus and such. But the fruits of the Spirit, verse 22, are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There's no law against these things. There's no point of fact to dicker over. This is our common ground. This is what the Holy Spirit produces in the lives of Jesus' followers. And of these, I have long recognized goodness to be the most ambiguous and vague. Have you ever in your life, lifelong Christians, heard a sermon expressly on the fruit of goodness? I never have. I heard the, the headliners, the front side singles, if you will, love, joy, peace, you know, kindness even. But the B-side singles, goodness, gentleness, self-control, those always got kind of lumped into the one catch-all fruit of the Spirit message at the end of the series. And I get why, because goodness is a problem when you're discussing these explications of goodness, right? Aren't all the fruits of the Spirit what we understand collectively to be goodness? Like patience and kindness and faithfulness, that's what goodness means. But goodness is sort of, appears to be like an umbrella fruit. And so how do we disambiguate goodness from all the other fruits which are collectively functionally goodness. That's our practical task this morning. Are you with me? So at the end of this, I can't promise that you'll understand goodness. I hope you will, but at least I can rectify one wrong, which is that you will have now heard at least one sermon in your life specifically on the fruit of goodness. All right? So here we go. Uh, when trying to understand something that's confusing about the Bible, I believe as spiritually vibrant but also intellectually honest students of Scripture, we are wise to recognize, to remember that while the Bible was written for us, it was not written to us. It was written in this case, this portion of it, to residents of a cosmopolitan Eurasian city at the dawn of the age of Christianity. These were very much first-generation Christians in a Greek-speaking culture in a, a geopolitical context that was dominated by the Roman Empire. And as such, they would have, among other things, read the letter in the language in which it was written, which is Greek, and it would have meant some things to them that are not different from what it means to us, but perhaps more clear where to us it's more vague because not all language 
correlates one-to-one, right? And so I think it's helpful to look at the Bible first for what it was meant to communicate to the ones to whom it was primarily written, and then zoom out again and look at what that might mean for us for whom it was written 2,000-some years later. So goodness, as we translate it, is here the Greek word agathosuni. Agathosuni. It does not roll off the tongue, and I don't expect you to remember it. But agathosuni is a specific Greek word used here as we translate it for the fruit of goodness. And so when we're trying to understand a word in the original language, I think a practical way of doing that is looking at the other usages of that word in Scripture and getting a broad context of what it could mean and then coming back to it in the context of the passage that we're looking at today and then understanding its specific meaning against that backdrop. Does that make sense? Are you tracking with me? Are you tracking with me? All right. Okay. So here's what agathosuni means in its broader or seems to be collectively used to mean in its broader New Testament usage. Beneficence, like a system of or code of goodness or active, not passive goodness. One scholar who's been particularly helpful to me observed the English word goodness includes several pleasing qualities. It is, for English speakers, kind of an umbrella quality that encompasses several others, but not among Greek speakers. The Greek word refers to one particular quality, and it's different from gentleness or kindness, say. It's best understood in contrast to what it's not, which is like a general mellowing of character to become a good person. Now, that's important, but that's not what this word connotes. He writes, the fruit of goodness is, listen, character energized, expressing itself in active good. So our title this morning as we look at the fruit of goodness is character energized. Perhaps that'll help kind of bookmark this idea that we're trying to clarify and zero in on. In Acts chapter 10, we find the apostles building the first century church among people like the Galatians, to whom this letter is written, who didn't experience Jesus firsthand the way those in Galilee, like Jesus' disciples did. And so the apostles are helping them understand what Jesus was like. They say in Acts 10, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And by the way, as an aside, this is one of the most significant verses for our understanding of the Trinity. Here you see how God, the Father, anointed Jesus, the Son, with the power of the Holy Spirit. And they worked in concert, three in one. And then what happened, the way that God is working Christ in us through the Holy Spirit to grow this fruit, what we talked about in the first week of this series. What happened is that subsequently Jesus went around doing good, not being good, which he was, but doing 
good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Now, if this verse sounds familiar, it's because you've heard Pastor George talk about it in the context of our mission, which is to live Jesus in our community. And we have these do-good days that come from this verse. This is agathosuni, doing practical, proactive, or concerted good. That's what Jesus did, and you see it played out in Luke chapter 4. Jesus comes out of 30 years of obscurity as a carpenter and a carpenter's son before that, and is baptized, remember, by John the Baptist in the Jordan River, and then the Holy Spirit descends on him. Heaven opens. God kind of leans over the balcony and breaks the space-time continuum, and he can't contain himself. He's like, that's my son with whom I'm well pleased. And then he's like, and he steps back behind the curtain of the cosmos. And then Jesus is immediately led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Remember where he fasts for 40 days and 40 nights, and the Bible points out astutely in Luke 4 that he was hungry. And then he's tempted in that weakened spot by the devil. We know that story well. And then it says in conclusion, the Holy Spirit led him out of the wilderness back to Galilee in the power of the Holy Spirit. Do you know where he stopped first? He went back to Nazareth, his hometown, where he began his life. And he went to a synagogue, kind of like this, a gathering of believers for worship on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read because that was the way they rolled. And when he stood up for his turn to read, he asked for the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And he opened to what we call Isaiah 61. And here's what he read. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives, to set prisoners free. And then he said, this is fulfilled today in your hearing. And they're all like, and then he rolled the scroll up and sat back down, having sucked all the air out of the room. Jesus inaugurated his ministry. He announced his purpose and the purpose of the church, which he would build in the context of agathusuni. Agathusuni doing good, right? He said, here's what the Spirit is anointing me to do, to proclaim good news, to bring good news to people who long have waited for it, to bind up those who are brokenhearted, to release prisoners from captivity. See, it's intentional. It's active. It's energized. And that's the mandate that Jesus gave for his church. His example for us, Scripture makes clear, was not just of being good, but of doing good. Goodness, as Jesus modeled it, the fruit of the Spirit by that name, is not sentiment, but expression. It's not moral correctness, moral correctness, but moral proactivity. Goodness is not being right, but righting wrong. Romans chapter 12 sums it up well. Don't let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by doing good. And the fruit of goodness is not random but concerted, intentional, systemic even. Do you know the trend in our culture of like pithy sayings? 
You know how like it'll start with somebody saying it in a movie and then it starts getting said a bunch and then it starts getting made into pretty uh, Instagram posts and circulated and then a couple of years later it gets put on a particle board sign and sold in Hobby Lobby for $39.99 and you buy it for your mom for Mother's Day. You know, like several years ago it was keep calm and carry on. And then, you know, soon after, a year after that, the cynics come along and, and create permutations of it that have to do with everything imaginable, you know, like keep calm and go snowboarding or whatever. And, and another one of those, like live, laugh, love, which you bought for your mom for Mother's Day like four years ago, admit it, you know you did, at Hobby Lobby, right? And then we mock them incessantly, but those things, okay, you know what's like the granddaddy of all American embraced pithy sayings was? This was like the thing that started it. You millennials, you know nothing about the pithy sayings that you post on Instagram. This was like when you were in kindergarten, we were posting pithy sayings. There wasn't even an internet and we were doing it, right? Do you remember any, any other uh, Xers? You remember this one? practice, so self-serious. It was so us, so earnest. Like, prepare millennials to laugh at us, because it's laughable. Practice random kindness and senseless acts of beauty. Mm. Did it, okay, true confession moment. The Holy Spirit knows if you're lying. Did anybody put that bumper sticker on your car or guitar case or something? Come on, somebody, I know you did. I want to mock you. Just kidding. Practice random kindness and senseless acts of beauty, and it seems so wonderful. Except when it's random and senseless, it's really less about you, isn't it, and more about me. It's when I'm feeling it. When I need a little shot in the arm, it'll pick me up. I'm going to do something good for someone. But goodness, the fruit of goodness, agothosuni, is not random or senseless. It's planned. It's predictive. It's proactive. It's systemic to our lives. That's what Jesus said he would do in the hearts of his believers and friends. This thing is in short supply. Kind of like vitamin D because we all work inside. So we got to take supplements because we don't hang out in the sun very much. This is like vitamin D in our culture, in our age, in the church. This fruit is sadly deficient, and I think we should do something about that. And that is a good place to say amen if you were so inclined. Like if George were preaching, you would have been all saying amen at that moment. And I kind of resent that you don't when I preach. I have to ask for it. Can I get an amen, somebody? Come on. Come on, turn to your neighbor and say, you look good. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. It's like, oh. Some of you are like, come on now, you're starting to preach when you tell me to turn to my neighbor. <laughs> Where are we? Got off a little tangent, just give me a second. Random kindness, there we are. Okay, and this, this point is where our explication of goodness, the fruit of, gets a little tricky because so often this systemic good, we, we try, we earnestly want to and are tempted by everything around us to affect it from the outside in. This is where it takes a turn for religious legalism and self-righteousness. This is where it gets into performance so easily. It wants to snap to that grid, right? But remember Galatians 5 that's talking about how Christ is forming in us, or it, how rather the Holy Spirit is growing Christ's fruit in us. Just one chapter earlier in Galatians 4, it says, it talks about how Christ is formed in us, right? Over time, we grow for Jesus to replace the old in us and 
dominate our character. And then the outflow of that is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And that's the grace by which we're saved. That's also the grace by which we must understand and approach goodness if we're going to sustain in it. Because otherwise, it's just one more exercise in legalistic righteousness. It grows sour in the mouths of others before too long because it becomes about us and trying to earn people's approval. And it never lasts. We wear out and then we get resentful and then we, then we throw the baby out with the bathwater because it's all hypocrites and religious uh, legalism and all that. So Jesus forms slowly in us and works his way out. That's the way that this thing goes. So where do we begin practically with this fruit of goodness. First John chapter 3 is a good place. Here's what the scripture says. We know what real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us. So he gave us a practical example around another very ambiguous and multifaceted word. So we also ought to, listen, give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. If someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother or sister in need but shows no compassion, how can God's love be in that person? Dear children, let's not merely say that we love each other. Let us show the truth by our actions. And I think our goodness toward one another does that. It shows this city that Jesus is truth. Jesus said just before he went to the cross to his disciples, I give you a new commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. And by this, the world will know that you are my disciples. Not by your disciple card that you carry and not by how rightly you do the religious rules, but by the way you love one another. Remember in the earlier days, some of us older folks, the, 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 the headwaters of evangelicalism coming out of the, like the 70s, my parents gave their lives to Jesus and went to campfire meetings and came home singing songs like, they will know that we are Christians by our love. I remember hearing those songs as a very small child and thinking, gosh, what a beautiful refrain. Do they know we are Christians by our love? How do they know Christianity by in our generation? our fundamentalism, perhaps our passion for our politics. That's how my editor for my soul search column knew that we were Christians and how that breaks my heart. Maybe it's by our religious correctness. I remember when I was in college, my campus fellowship group one semester blew all our student activity funds in one shot when we hired the big gun from out of town, uh, a, a, a famous evangelist, to come and speak on our campus. And a very smart and wonderful man um, who, who gave his life to Jesus and did great things with it. Knew more about the Bible than I ever will. And his expertise was in the area of, uh, of evangelism that we call apologetics, which is essentially defending our faith against scoffers and cynics and, and those who criticize it. You know, the arch enemy of the apologist is, is the, or opponent would be the person with the critique that the Bible is full of contradictions. You know, that person, a good apologist can just tear that argument apart. 
and, and explain why it's not and how that works and how that actually ends up proving that it's true. And I don't disagree with that. I think that's valuable, right? So we brought in a, a um, noted apologist, and we had him stand on the Bryan Center walkway. That was our student union building on a beautiful day like today, and he stood out there all day, sun up to sundown. I like brought him a sandwich at noon. All of the religious kids from my campus ministry and the others stood around in awe, and we got fed. It was like a day, it was like a conference. Learned so much about why what we believe is true, and we went to school with a bunch of people that were shooting holes in it constantly. So it was really affirming for us and good. But you know what? He kind of, the way the ministry went down that day is he basically played stump the chump for like six hours. You know, very dynamic communicator and confident guy. So he would gather a crowd and say, bring your questions, bring your doubts, you fire away at me. And they would, they would ask something and sometimes they'd get hostile, sometimes they were respectful and he would answer every question. If they had three, he'd answer four. If, if they had been wrestling with this their whole lives, he would put it to rest. He could explain it like no one had ever heard. I'm not sure one person's heart turned to the love of Jesus that day. They're like... All right, man, you guys got this thing figured out. I don't, I, maybe they went away thinking, okay, so, so maybe that's true. I don't know if anyone's heart got touched. One of our leaders in residence, Craig Springer, who shared the word with us several weeks ago, he leads Alpha in the U.S. and is part of our church family. He shared something with me that stuck. He said that researchers in the Christian community over the last decade have found that in this post-generation, every, post-everything generation, sorry, people aren't asking, is our religion true any longer? They're asking, is our religion good? See, our goodness toward one another shows that Jesus is true. What kind of community would you be attracted to? What do you want to belong to? A place where they all are convinced that they're right about everything, and if you give them the time, they'll convince you too? So our goodness is for the watching world, but our goodness to one another is more than for them. We need each other now, friends, more than ever. Psalm 27 finds David, the psalmist, in a place that maybe some of us would identify with. He was at a low point. His hopes had been dashed. His dreams shattered. Everything that could go wrong seems like it has. He cries out to God. He says, my enemies are all around. They're waiting for me. Don't let me fall into their hands. This is his prayer journal. For they accuse me of things I've never done. With every breath, they threaten me with violence. Yet I am confident. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I'll see it while I'm here. I won't have to wait to the great beyond. And I think that's what goodness is all about. We experience the goodness of the Lord, mostly not through angels coming and waving the goodness wand or... God breaking through the space-time continuum and doing a miracle, though we believe for those and love it when they happen. We routinely experience the goodness of the Lord, I think mostly at the hands of one another. Years ago, when I was a young associate, I witnessed something that changed me a little. 
forever. There was a small group. We had a church made up of lots and lots of small groups, and there was one that was uh, families in generally the same stage of life, one of whom was a single mom. The rest were married couples. And um, this, this mom worked so hard. She worked harder than the rest of them. Um, not that they didn't work hard. She just had to work twice as hard to give her kids the same opportunities, but probably had a little less margin maybe. And um, was loved and accepted as a part of the group, which I thought was just beautiful and as it should be. Until one day um, she was on, the, on I-25 and the check engine light came on and not the yellow one that's like you have to pay 500 bucks to get the software updated but the red one that is like your engine's about to grind to a halt on the side of the interstate in, in the next two minutes, which it did. And so she described later sitting there on the side of I-25 with the kids in the car um, and her van dead, the engine blew, and just, just weeping. Everything she had held together for so long, being strong for her kids, for her community, not wanting anyone's pity, not refusing to be a victim. And then she just, hit a hard stop. She didn't go to group that week. She didn't want to be that person. But she shared with one who lovingly shared with the group. And none of them was rich, although it's great when people are and they can just write a check. They were all working class folks, but they all dug into their savings, broke the piggy bank, decided not to go on their vacation that summer, and they pitched in together and bought her a a quality vehicle that would provide her family with reliable transportation and just gave it to her. Not with fanfare, they didn't bring cameras, they didn't call the news, just did it. Changed their lives, changed the course of those kids' lives. Galatians 6 says, let's not get tired. So this is right after the fruits of the Spirit passage in the next chapter. You know, all the fruits got talked about, but it comes back to this one, goodness. It says, let's not get tired of doing what, doing what is good. Let's not get tired of practicing this fruit of goodness. Because just the right time, we'll reap a harvest, a harvest of blessing if we don't give up. Therefore, whenever we have the opportunity, we should do good to everyone, especially to those in the family of faith. And I'm so proud of this church. I love being a part of it and raising my family in this community. In a year where the love of many has grown cold, your eyes have continually lifted up and outward, and you've done so much good for so many in front of this city and given Jesus a glorious name. It's beautiful. I'm so proud of you. I think in church, in this church, in the church as a whole, over the course of this challenging year. We've been a little rough on one another, though, in the family of faith. And not without reason. These are not petty things we've wrestled with. You know, we've been rough with one another over masks and everything that that involves, and vaccines, and racial tensions, elections. Friends, what I've seen has grieved my heart so much. We've been cutting people out of our lives at an unsustainable pace. You know how it happens. Like, I feel passionate about something. We 
listen to others who are passionate about that thing. It's not wrong. It's your, your opinion or it's your strong conviction. You're entitled to it. And so what do we do when we feel passionate about it? We, we, we do the noble thing of taking our passion. I did it too, to Facebook and proclaim it, taking a stand. And we kind of do the sorry, not sorry rant. I just got to say this. Sorry if it offends you all. Go ahead and delete me if you want to or unfriend me, but I just have to stand up for what I believe. And then the person that was our friend that we sat across from in church is like, I, I don't, I, I'm passionate about the exact opposite thing. And so sorry, not sorry, but I got to post it too. And then we have a little online sparring. Have you ever known anyone, one person whose mind has been changed by social media? who went there thinking, I'm going to go to Facebook to find out what I think about something. My mind is, I've really been, been considering all the options, <laughs> right? And so what do we do? We, we end up going back and forth and then the thing gets tense and then we see one another and it's awkward and we kind of do that. And then one day we unfriend and then we unfriend. And what we do online is like a, a metaphor for what we do in our lives. And then we break up and then we just, we realize we've become a statistic. Jesus said in Matthew 24, look into the end of all things. The sins of many will grow rampant and the love of many will grow cold. And then we just kind of go away because it's easier than coming and living in so many tensions and having to tippy-toe around so many people. And we're unfriending faster than we can replenish because we don't make friends and grow in life and in trust as fast as we hit the unfriend button, do we? And so then over the course of time, what happens is we wake up alone. And friends, this isn't God's way. Goodness plays out in a, in a community in a few just practical ways that we can do right now. One is compassion. Simply hearing and noticing caring for one another in the places we find ourselves, the things we're going through. It plays out in empathy. Something that doesn't grow abundantly in the soil of a culture whose galvanizing dream is my life being better than my parents and whose watchwords are look out for number one. But empathy is understanding and relating. It's not calling good, blessing, or passing judgment one way or the other, but simply holding one another in the place that each other is, feeling with one another or trying to. Sometimes I can imagine, I know what it feels like, man, to have my kid have just gone back to school after like a year, only to have to quarantine again and like, Oh my gosh, my wife just was able to work without having to also do that all day. And then now we're home again. I know how that feels. I am so sorry. Or like, I frankly have no idea how it feels. Like you're caring for a health vulnerable or elderly person. And as best you understand public, public health, you're not a doctor or a scientist. You, you don't want to endanger them. So you haven't seen anyone for a year. I have no idea how that loneliness feels. Or you just moved to this country and everybody's told to stay in their homes and you've never felt so alone. I don't know how that feels, but I can only imagine that must be hard. Or you, 
you were expected to cheer and close the book and say justice was served with that verdict last week, but it doesn't feel like justice to you. It feels like just a highlight of a larger injustice. And it's not about headlines or politics. It's about personal pain, pain that you've experienced, pain that your grandparents and your parents experienced. I don't know what that feels like, but it, I, I, can, I can hold that. Or you like you, you put everything into starting this business and it finally got traction and was going and then it was forced to a halt and you like cashed in your retirement just to keep paying your employees so you can, they can put bread on the table for their kids and you don't know how much longer you can hold out. I don't know how that feels, but that's got to be hard. Empathy doesn't ask more from us, friends. It asks less, less judgment of, yeah, your position is right. Therefore, I'm with you. Or no, your position is wrong. You shouldn't be thinking that about your business because we're all in this together. Or your position is right because you, you have been a victim of ge generations of injustice. Or your position is wrong. You need to just pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And, see, empathy asks less of us. It asks us simply to be willing to go this far and no further. I can only imagine how hard it's been being you as you describe it. I can hold that with you. That's, that's goodness, right? And then maybe it culminates in generosity. As we're able, helping one another. Maybe we can do something extraordinary like pitching in and buying the minivan. Maybe it's a cup of cold water in Jesus' name. He said, we're not going to be held responsible for the opportunities, friends, that we do not have. Only the opportunities that we do. But when we have the opportunity, be generous. Help one another. 1 John says, we know how to love because Jesus first loved us. If we do this by digging deep, that's ah, going to run out. It's a ticking bomb. Jesus first loved us, loved us. Jesus did this very thing for us. Went around doing good to everyone he saw and then gave his life for us while we were still sinners. And it's Jesus renewing our hearts that enables us to do good to one another. It's the Holy Spirit forming Christ in us and growing this good fruit slowly over time out of us. And so friends, there's no other way than walking alongside Jesus. There's no other way to be good. People have tried for millennia. But Jesus Christ died on a cross so we could be forgiven, yes, free from the slavery to sin and the impulses to do the things we just hate and don't want to do. Yes, but he also died on a cross so we could be good. And it's ironic, the one place that you should be able to go with your doubts, with your fears, with your hurtful experiences of past and talk about it in a safe place is the one place that most of us instinctively would dare never not say the party line. But that is exactly what Jesus did. He met people where they were at and he gave them grace and he made them safe. Held their fears and doubts. We have a conversation ongoing in this gathering. It's about an hour each week on Tuesday night. It's called Alpha. And this is like the, the, the end of the beginning this week. 
and then we'll start a new iteration uh, in, in a couple months. But it's not too late. If you'd like to jump in, it's a place where you can explore. You can be where you're at without judgment and with welcome and love. And I hope you'll join us. It's Tuesday night, and you'll find all the information on our website, denverunited.com. Some of us just need to be refreshed in Jesus. We need to give him our hearts again. Take down the firewall and let him renew us. Would you stand with me? And I'll pray that for you. Father, in Jesus' name, how we love Jesus. Man, watching how you did this and really unpacking what that would mean for me just blows me away that you never broke character. You never just had a me day. You never just went off on somebody in traffic or while they were brutally killing you. You loved everyone you saw. We want to be good like you. We want to do good to one another. And God, first, I, I just want to say, and if, if this is you, just pray this with me. I just want to say I'm sorry, God, for my love growing cold and for righteous rants at times and for being quick to opt out of relationship. There was so much this year. God, would you forgive us and heal us? Would you make our hearts new? All who are willing, just pray this with me. Would you restore my heart, Jesus, with your love? You loved me first. I want to be like you. Help me to love this family of believers right where they're at. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Love you all. We hope you've been encouraged this week. For more information or to submit a prayer request, go to denverunited.com. 